Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Tristan Reese. I was one of those people that goes door to door and finds homophobic people and tries to change their mind. It is as easy as it sounds. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Gray Boy All-Stars behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Rarities. These are three stories about people who found themselves in life circumstances that just felt completely unique and owned it. In a little bit, we're going to hear a story from a fella going by the name Dick Richards. And that story was recorded when Risk was in Vancouver. Man, it was years ago. You know, we have lots of stories in our archives that for a whole host of reasons we've been holding on to or we just haven't found an episode that they seem to click with or or whatever it might be. So yeah, there are some very old stories that we look back at and we're like, let's run that finally. And so that Dick Richards story from the first time, I think, that Risk was in Vancouver a few years ago, that's a real treat and it's coming up soon. But before that, we're going to hear another story that was recorded not at a Risk Live show, but at a live show put on by the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon, 
Oh my gosh, if you live anywhere near Portland, you have got to get yourself to a Mystery Box show. They are so phenomenal. Reba and Eric just put together a terrific story show. They're, they're stories that usually have something to do with sex or sexuality, and we're teaming up with them. We're going to be doing a show in conjunction with the Mystery Box. So pitch us your stories if you live anywhere near Portland. Again, it'll be sexuality sorts of stories. The actual themes that you can choose from are ravenous. It's a word I often use to describe myself. Uh, Experiments and never say never. Uh, So pitch us. Portland. Uh, you know, it's pitches at risk-show.com. Anyway, our first story today does come from a mystery box show. It was recorded in Portland. This storyteller, oh my gosh, he is such a remarkable guy. You can find him at biffandi.com, and I highly recommend you look him up because he has an extraordinary family. And he's doing a beautiful job of documenting it, you know, journaling about it in public. And all of that, like I said, is at biffandi.com. Here is Tristan Reese now with a story we call Ordinary Miracles. I'm sitting on my couch in my living room next to my partner, Biff, and there is a gigantic microphone in our face. Uh, We're being interviewed for our favorite parenting podcast, The Longest Shortest Time. And we're being interviewed because it's a parenting podcast and we're going to have a baby, which I know is not a big deal. It's how we all got here. Uh, But in our case, it is a big deal because at the time of the interview, I was pregnant. Um, This is not a miracle of modern medicine. I'm just transgender. Um, And for me, that means that I was born female. I had a a girlhood. Um, At an early age, I was exposed to theater. I know it's shocking. Um, And that was my first interaction with gay people. And I was like, yep. Uh, And so the joke became that I was a gay man trapped in a woman's body. And as I got older, um, the literal feeling of being trapped in the wrong body got more and more uh, pervasive and painful until around age 20 I met a transgender man and I realized it was not a joke at all. I actually was a gay man trapped in a woman's body and with that realization of course came the second realization that I could fix this problem. Uh, and live a happy life. Um, So I took testosterone, and that made me look like I do today, like every other gay dude in Portland. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And so that's one thing you should know about me, and the thing you should know about my partner Biff is that he changed my life. Uh, We met when I was living in Los Angeles. Um, I was living my childhood dream of being a professional pissed-off queer. (laughs) Yeah. I was an actual gay rights activist, um, and at the time I was working on marriage equality, and I was one of those people that goes door to door and finds homophobic people and tries to change their mind. (laughs) 
it is as easy as it sounds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's usually three problems that people have with the gays when you talk to them. Um, number one, it's against their religion. Number two, it's against tradition. And number three, gay sex is icky. Um, and it turns out that I was really good at having these conversations um, with these people. Uh, I was really good at being patient and open and pleasant and curious. Um, and when they said really hateful things to me that didn't feel hateful to them, I could kind of just roll with it. And so I did that, and I was good at it, but it was really hard internally, because it's hard to hear hateful things all day, every day, as part of your job. And the second reason that it was hard to do that job is because I was pretty sure that I was never going to get married. Um, not because I didn't want to, I did, but I didn't know any trans people who were married. I didn't even know any trans people who had relationships that weren't like fighting all the time on Facebook for everyone to see. <laughs> You know what I mean? And that was when Grindr first started. And what I was hearing mostly from dudes on Grindr was kind of the same stuff that I was hearing from voters at the door was that I was gross. And so I didn't think that love was really in the cards for me or that I would ever find it. And then I met Biff. Um, first of all, he is the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my whole life. Um, so when I met him, I was just like, holy shit. <laughs> and there are two kinds of gay dudes, right? There are gay dudes who like dick, and then there are gay dudes who like men. And he was that second kind. He didn't care what I had going on. I mean, he cared, but in a good way. You know what I mean? And the way that I showed up in his mind was that I was perfect, and it was my first time feeling perfect. And all of those voices, those voters' voices, those dudes on Grindr, they all went away. And for the first time in my life, I felt perfect. And we dated, and then we fell in love, and then we adopted his niece and nephew because they needed a place to live, and we had a place. And we did get married. Thank you. Um, and then four years after we got married, I started to have dreams about having his baby. Um, not in the way that people are like, I want to have your baby. I mean, yes, that, but also literally have his baby. And I have a uterus and eggs, and he has sperm. <laughs> you do the math, you know what I mean? And I know hundreds of transgender men like me who have beards and everything who have successfully given birth to happy, beautiful kids. So I totally knew it was possible. And I went to the doctor, and I was like, can I do this? They checked me out, and I was explained um, that testosterone is a little bit like hormonal birth control. It stops ovulation, you stop taking it, and then everything kind of kicks back into gear, and you can conceive and carry a child just like anyone else. And I started to be really excited about having a baby and having his baby. And I also started to really be excited about what it would mean to be a pregnant man. Because for me, a lot of what I hear basically is, I will accept you as a man as long as I never have to think about the fact that you are transgender. Which for me, I'm like, is that acceptance or is that coercion? You know what I mean? And so for me, I was like, what if I didn't let people allow me to let them forget that I'm transgender? What if I embraced and accepted the fact that I am a dude, I have a uterus, and I can make a fucking baby, and none of you guys can do that? And no offense, dudes, but like, I don't want to be like you. 
So I stopped taking testosterone and I got pregnant. And it was awesome. Uh, the end was hard. But like the beginning part <laughs> was awesome. And I felt like we were kind of um, uh, like in the footsteps of that sacred queer tradition of taking broken shards of glass and putting them together to make a beautiful mosaic. Like we had taken all these disparate things and we had created a family out of love. And my teenage self like really needed to tell this story publicly, which is how I ended up on that couch with the big microphone in my face um, because I wanted to tell the story. And the podcast did a really good job. They cut out all the parts where I sounded stupid. Um, <laughs> and they put it together really nicely. And I thought, you know, maybe a few hundred people will, will hear this story and it'll, and it'll impact them. And the night that the podcast came out, I got an email from Cosmo Magazine. For me, I'm like, that's the big time. You know what I mean? And they were like, can we write a story um, electronically? And I was like, yes, maybe a few thousand people will hear our story, and it'll have even more of an impact. So I was super proud of myself, and I like went to bed that night, whoop, Cosmo Magazine. Um, while I was asleep, it was nighttime here on the other side of the earth, it was daytime, and the tabloids were hard at work. So I woke up the next morning and pulled up Facebook, and there is our story um, on the Daily Mail, uh, which is a tabloid with about a million and a half readers every day. And there was our story, and there was my picture. And by the time I opened up Facebook, that article had been shared 26,000 times. There were 56,000 comments. I am not a morning person, so I wasn't really thinking clearly. <laughs> so I scrolled down, and I looked at the comments. Where were you guys that morning? <laughs> really, could have, really could have used you. Um, they were not good, as you may imagine. Um, a lot of people said that I was not a pregnant man. I'm just a really ugly, hairy woman. Um, a lot of people said I looked like a circus freak, and I'm like, cool, some of my best friends are circus freaks, you know? And then there was a good chunk of people who said that they hoped that I gave birth to a dead baby. Because that baby would be better off than a baby who had to be born to someone like me. And it was like, it all came back. All of those voters and all those dudes on Grindr and now this whole new group of voices, strangers on the internet, telling me how disgusting I am. And I was six months pregnant when I read that comment. And we had to make a choice, Biff and I. We had to decide if we were going to step back and let the tabloids have their way with us or if we would try to tell our story, keep telling our story, but responsibly. And that's what we did. We partnered with CNN and People Magazine and Washington Post to try and get out in front of it and tell the story uh, the way that we wanted it to be told about love and possibility. And it worked. We had the incredible privilege of being invited into millions of homes all over America on the nightly news actual queer people with piercings and tattoos, one of whom was pregnant. And we heard from people all over, the Midwest, the South, religious people saying I was the first trans person they ever met, and that they never knew that trans people could be parents. We heard from trans youth who were like, thank you for telling me that finally I can tell my mom that she could be a grandmother one day, that I don't have to give up anything 
if I'm trans. Nothing. And that was really exciting to hear. But in the back of my head, I knew why we had been invited in and other people hadn't. And it's because we are really safe. We look like every other gay couple in Portland, except I was pregnant. (laughs) We were like sterile and positive and calm, just like I'd been at the door with those voters, right? I could never get angry at the incredibly invasive things that they said. Um, And one time, when we were about to go live for our very first television interview, um, Biff went to put his hand on my knee, and I batted it away. And I looked at him, and he was so hurt. And we did the interview, and then the lights came down. And he said, what was that? And I had to explain to him what I had learned with those voters, that homophobia and transphobia is a really intense and complicated system of tripwires. And you have to basically be a ninja to get around them, to get to the root, to dismantle it. And I knew if people saw us holding hands, kissing, hugging, touching, that for some people who didn't know what to think about gay people, that was going to be too much, and we were going to lose them. It would feel good to me to, like, kiss this man that I love, but that would be about my ego, not about actually making it easier for the next, more controversial, uh, more interesting, uh, more um, compelling trans person that comes along behind us, and that's what we wanted to do. The other thing we had to do was answer really fucked up questions. (laughs) Really fucked up questions. People are really obsessed with trans bodies. And I'm like, you know, thank you for the interest, um, but no thank you. Um, so people really wanted to know if I was going to breastfeed. Like, I got this question all the time. Are you going to breastfeed? Can you breastfeed? Um, do you know that if you don't breastfeed, your baby's going to end up sickly? Not science, <laughs> by the way, at all. People wanted to know what kind of birth I was planning to have, a C-section or a natural birth. I'm sorry, is any birth unnatural? It was completely bizarre. But then my favorite, slash least favorite, Question was, how is the baby conceived? (laughs) You're asking about my sex life on NBC. (laughs) What am I supposed to say? Do you know what I mean? And the real reason that I couldn't actually answer that question is because the real story is, like, not safe for work. (laughs) (laughs) The truth is, while I was ovulating, Biff was working night shifts, so one night I snuck into his work after midnight, and we fucked in the bathroom at his work. When you've been with someone for eight years, that shit doesn't happen that much. It was amazing, and like not something I can tell Anderson Cooper. Do you know what I mean? So I answer all those questions. I maintain that like perfect model trans person demeanor, even though it killed me, all the way up until the day it was time to actually give birth to this giant fucking baby that had taken over my body. (laughs) And the hospital was super nice, and Biff was amazing, and my dad was there, and, and Biff's mom was there. And if you had asked me before I gave birth, like, is childbirth a miracle? I would have been like, no, it's, it's science. Then I had a baby. It's a fucking miracle. There wasn't a person there, and now there's a person. 
you're like a god. It was amazing. It was amazing. And, and he was just more than I could have ever imagined. And we named him Leo. And after he was born and I was holding his little body, our friend came and took a little video of us being like, ha ha, you said two men can't make a baby, watch us, whatever. <laughs> and then when she left, I knew in my heart that I was done with this whole media stuff, um, that it was my job now to be a really good parent to this brand new person and to my amazing older kids and a way better partner to Biff than I'd been when I was pregnant. (laughs) And I just told Biff, I'm done. I can't do Facebook or Instagram or comments or none of it done. And he took a deep breath and he held my hand and he said, sweetheart, I love you so much, but no, no. Because if we stop now, then the clickbait, the pregnant man, that's the story. <laughs> not our family. Not what comes afterwards. Not this vision that we have for a, a better world where anybody can get pregnant and feel loved and supported. Where anybody can hold hands and kiss on television and not have people turn it off or tell them how fucking disgusting they are. That's the world we're working for. And if we stop now, we're not really helping to get there. And that's why I'm here on the stage today, is because I trust Biff. (laughs) And I'm telling my story as much as I can for as long as I can, um, in the hopes that the love that I start to feel from all of you and from this incredible family that we have built from shards of glass can drown out all of that hate. Because as it turns out, nothing is better at driving out hate than love. Thank you. Did you ever think that your mother used to be a little boy and your dad used to be a little girl? That's right. They were children one time, too. Daddies are people. People with children. When daddies were little, they used to be girls. Like some of you But then they grew And now Daddies are men Men with children Busy with children And and things that they do There are a lot of things A lot of mommies And a lot of daddies And and a lot lot of parents can do Holy shit, there are a lot of you guys out there. Kind of wish this podium was a little wider so you guys wouldn't notice the uh, steady stream of nervous urination that will be pouring from me for the duration of this set. So June 18th of 2009 was the best day of my life. That was the day that my son was born. As I sat with him in the nursery of the little hospital in the town that, that he was born in, with him on my chest, I knew that being a dad was the one thing that I wanted to do. I hadn't known before that that that's what I wanted, but here I was. You know, it wasn't something that we planned, but these things happen, and it was the best moment of my life. I had been sober at that point for nine months. I I quit drinking the minute that I found out that my partner was pregnant um, because I had a really serious problem. I, I drank all day, every day, 
And I dabbled in drugs, whatever I could get my hands on. I was just a mess. But seeing that little baby and seeing his face and how beautiful it was, I knew I had a reason to stay sober. Unfortunately, my previous life of drinking didn't lend me any uh, opportunity to grow into the kind of parent that I should have been. I couldn't hold a job. I uh, made a lot of mistakes, but I really relished being a father. It was really something special. For the first nine months of my son's life, I would wake up with him every day. It was just amazing, you know? He's such a beautiful, happy little guy. He never gave us any trouble. He would sleep through the night right from the day he was born. I was genuinely happy, but because I wasn't working and I wasn't fulfilling my duties as a partner, the pressure mounted. And uh, I guess that's why it was especially heartbreaking when on June 18th of 2010, my partner asked me to move out. It came about kind of abruptly, and I remember standing in the kitchen of our place. I, was, uh, I had been drinking again uh, for about three months at this point, and uh, I remember standing there in the kitchen and looking down at the checkered floor and feeling so fucking hungover and just shitty. And, and she said, uh, I'm taking our son. We're going to go into town and we're going to get groceries. And when we get back, I want you to be gone. And I kind of thought she was just, I don't know, like I thought she was bullshitting. I didn't think it was a real threat. You know, I thought, whatever, you know, but I'm going to teach her a lesson and I'm actually going to go. And so as soon as she walked out of the door, I packed up my backpack and I hit the road. We lived on Vancouver Island at the time. And so my solution was to uh, hitchhike to the ferry, jump on, come over here and stay with a buddy of mine, John. John's a great guy. He's, he's here tonight, actually. Still a good friend of mine. He's a few years older than me, and I've really looked up to him since I was a kid. He's always been maybe a bit of a bad influence. Maybe I was a bad influence on, on him at times, too. I was devastated. I, uh, by the time I got here, I was a mess. I was super upset, and I just I wanted to be with my boy, you know? I wanted to be with my son. I wanted my partner to take me back. I just wanted to be the good parent that I was able to be when I was sober. I, I didn't like this guy that was drinking every day, and it didn't matter that I was sober during the day when my son was there, because as soon as he was in bed, I was fucked up again. John had plans, I guess, for me as a lot of guy friends do when you're in that heartbroken kind of mentality. John's plan was to get me late. <laughs> it sounded good, you know, but... <laughs> believe it or not, as some of you probably know, um, the ladies aren't exactly clamoring for the sad, chubby, drunk dude. <laughs> um, but we made a valiant effort throughout the summer there were some pretty ridiculous times. Nothing that I'll bore you with tonight other than uh, maybe a few failed trips to Rack Beach. <laughs> uh, went through a brief period that summer where I substituted a sarong for pants. <laughs> Again, ladies aren't into that, apparently. <laughs> this Vancouver crowd is really prudish. Uh, but whatever it was worth a try right <laughs> by this point I was drinking heavier than I ever 
ever had. I was really, it, as funny as it is, I was just, I was a sad mess. I would wake up every morning in this basement apartment in East Vancouver and I would lay in my bed until noon or so and I would, I would cry, I would just feel like shit. I'd be hungover and I would miss my partner and I would miss my son. I would try to phone her and she wouldn't answer the phone and I would be so heartbroken about it, but I mean, I can't blame her, right? I was a, I was a mess and I had, I had basically abandoned her with our then one-year-old boy. We spent a lot of our time just getting drunk, popping pills, Percocets, or Dilaudid, or whatever we could get our hands on, just generally being fucked up. And uh, walking down Commercial Drive one day, in my sarong probably, <laughs> and uh, I look across the street and there's this girl, I haven't seen her in 10 years. Uh, her name is Jane, she's a really slight, petite, punk rock girl, and that was kind of my thing at the time. I was pretty into the punk scene. She looked across the street, and she saw me, and our eyes met, and she came bolting across Commercial Drive. She threw her arms around me, and she said, Kier, that's, not my, that's, my, real, that's my real name. It's just a secret between us. My real name's not Dick Richards. Fuck, it's all out there now, isn't it? Thank you. I'm going to go with it. So she said, Kier, holy shit, I haven't seen you in 10 years. She gave me a huge hug, and we caught up a little bit. And I think I probably omitted the part of the story where I was a fat, lazy, unemployed alcoholic. I think I told her that I was probably visiting for the weekend. I don't know. It's all kind of a blur. And she said, hey, you know, it's been really nice catching up, but I got to go. I'm, I'm going on this camping trip. Um, I don't know where they're going. Is there even a camping place around here? It's Vancouver. <laughs> I've camped under a bridge here once, but... She said, I gotta go, I'm going on this camping trip, but when I get back, after the weekend, I'd really like to catch up again, you know? We can, you can come over and, and have a drink or whatever. I thought, it's a free drink. Let's, let's do it. So she went on her way, and uh, John and I went on our way, and... He was sure right off the hop that that was my opportunity. I was going to get laid and I wasn't going to be so sad anymore. And I still wasn't really convinced. My confidence wasn't exactly at an all-time high at this point. Probably an hour or so went by when my phone rang, which is odd because my phone never rang because all I did was sit alone and cry all day. <laughs> but it rang and it was Jane and she said, hey, all my friends bailed. We were going to go camping, but nobody can go anymore, so I'm at home she only lived four or five blocks from where John and I lived. She said, I got a cooler full of beer and I got all this food. I want a barbecue. Why don't you come over? Not exactly being the brightest guy in the world. I was like, cool, can John come? <laughs> She's like, I guess so. <laughs> so we packed up our stuff, whatever. And we walked over. It was only a few blocks. And, and the whole way there, John's building me up. He's like, this is it. It's going to happen. You know, you don't, you don't have to be so sad anymore. We're going to get you laid tonight. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> if I knew then what I knew now. <laughs> so we walk in the door. And before the door even closes behind us in this little apartment, John starts going off about sex. Like, nonstop. Like, shit that I've never heard of before or since, he's talking about it. 
he's talking about his cock ring, and he's talking about fucking going down on his girlfriend, and he's, you know, just nonstop. I'm, like, desperately trying to get into this cooler that's sitting on the floor without making it too obvious that I'm a raging alcoholic. I'm shaking, though, which is a dead giveaway. I don't think I got a word in for that first hour, because he's still going, he's still talking about it. Before long, I'm pretty drunk. Uh, the food's been cooked and eaten, and uh, Jane hasn't, I don't think, said a word. Finally, with one last slam of beer, John goes, well, I gotta go. You guys have a good night. And he's out, just like a shot. Like, I've never seen this man move so fast. He's out of the apartment. And then it's just her and I, and I'm wasted. But, I mean, that, that's, that was what I came here to do, was to get drunk. But, I mean, I guess a, a couple hours of steady sex talk, albeit from a large man, I don't know why that got me going. <laughs> Deep-seated issues. Love you, John. Uh, before I know it, this, this girl is on top of me, and she's pushing me back on this couch. She's got this big, plush, white couch, and... She's pushing me back, and she straddles me. And I gotta be honest, for a minute I felt okay. I felt like, you know, I'm not thinking about all the shit that's going wrong in my life. I'm just thinking about what the next 38 seconds or so <laughs> are gonna be like for me. So I was pretty out of it, and things moved pretty quick. But the next thing I knew, my pants were around my ankles, and she's still on top of me. And as she inserted me into her, let's go with the clinical terms here. I don't have, I don't have the sexual acumen of some of our previous uh, storytellers. It was pretty good. It felt really nice. It felt. I don't know if you guys have experienced this before. <laughs> Highly recommend it. And it continued it, it, beyond the 38 second mark. It just kept going. You know, you have, there's like two ways when you're, when you're drunk and you're having sex where it's like, it's either it's not happening at all or it's happening for way too fucking long. And uh, I'm normally on the it's not happening at all side of things, but this time, I don't know, it was just going and going, and going. And she's going up and down and up and down and up. And on one of these upstrokes, I popped out for one second. But I didn't care, I was pretty drunk and I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm getting late, this is awesome. But then the downstroke came. And when the downstroke came, I heard this sound that I've never heard before. It sounded like uh, cracking knuckles, kind of. And then it was followed by another sound that I've never heard before, which was me fucking shrieking like a banshee. And then I heard something that I just, I mean... She jumped up pretty quick, but the words that came out of her mouth blew my mind because she screamed, Why does this keep happening to me? It was pretty special. 
It's good to get back out there. I didn't have a lot of time to process the thought of why this keeps happening to her. Because I was spraying blood. Like a, like a tiny little average-sized fire hose. Like, like that white couch wasn't white anymore. And the floor, the hardwood floor was slippery. And I didn't know what to do. And, and she goes, what do I do? And I'm like, I don't fucking know. I thought the best thing I could do would be to run down the hall and jump in the tub because if I'm gonna bleed anywhere, I might as well be in the bathtub. And so that's what I did. She comes barreling down the hall after me and she goes, do I call an ambulance? I'm like, fuck no. For the love of God, we don't need to bring more people into this. We'll deal with this internally, thank you. Uh, but she did call an ambulance. And being East Vancouver, I assume paramedics just cruise around that area waiting for things to happen. I don't know that they had this in mind, but they were there pretty quick, and I'm thankful for that. When they uh, came into the bathroom, I vaguely remember looking down at my toes and seeing that the blood was starting to accumulate like a puddle around my feet, and it was not slowing down. It was still just going. And the paramedic says, dude, you need to sit down or you're going to lose consciousness. I said, I'm fine. As soon as it was out of my mouth, bam, I hit the floor. First I hit the faucet with my head, then I hit the floor. I woke up, I guess a couple minutes later, on the uh, stretcher as they were wheeling me out of the apartment. <sighs> Doesn't get any better from here, guys. The commotion of the paramedics had woken up literally every person in this building who was now, they were all standing at their front door, giggling, <laughs> schoolgirl-like. You know, earlier I mentioned the, the two kinds of sex thing. It was not, it was still there, 90 degrees, holding the, the sheet aloft and blood soaking through. I'll never forget the 90-ish year old lady across the hall just looking at me like, shaking her head like, what is going on over there? You kids. And then I lost consciousness again. <clears throat> I woke up, I don't know how much longer later, in the hospital. And at this point, I, uh, I was being cleaned up by two nurses who were doing their best to remain straight-faced, and I'm really thankful for that. One had the job of cleaning the coagulated blood off of my body that had just amassed itself when I hit the floor. The other had the less desirable job of cleaning up the mess I made when I lost control of my bowels. Yeah, that... You know what's up. We have a medical professional in the house. I... <laughs> Anyways. I didn't know how to handle the situation. The best I could do was pull the IV out of my arm and walk out of the hospital with my sarong. Um, Jane, to her credit, had come with me to the hospital. I would have fucking... That would have been it for me. But... 
She came with me. Unfortunately, in her haste to get out of the apartment, she grabbed one of her shirts. So I was stuck with this sarong and this uh, torn up bad brain shirt that came to just above my navel, which was still caked in blood and just looked great. I had no money. I had to walk home. (laughs) You talk about a walk of shame. It doesn't get any more shameful than that. But it gave me a lot of time to think, and I realized that the situation that had presented itself was, I'm just going to go out on a limb and guess, not one that happens to just everybody. And typically, I think the way that somebody would handle that would be to reevaluate their life and to maybe start to make better choices, and so that's what I did. I did stick around Vancouver for another week or two, but I realized that I needed to be at home with my family. I couldn't do this anymore. It was... uh, The sarong was too much, blood was too much, it was just a mess. So I came home, I went home to Vancouver Island. I wish I could say that things worked out with my partner, but they didn't. I can say, however, that my son, my beautiful baby boy, he's going to be eight years old next week, and we get to see each other every week. He's legitimately my best friend in the world. His mom went on to meet her current partner, who is absolutely the fucking best stepdad that my kid could ever ask for, which is super cool. I'm so thankful for both of them. They have two more beautiful babies now. And I often find myself wondering, at this point, how my life would be different if I hadn't spent a good 15 or 20 years dabbling in drugs and alcohol. And I don't know if my personality would be any different or what would change, but I do know that without fucked up experiences like that, I wouldn't be the man I am today, which is a good dad, a happy person, and uh, a broke dick survivor. (laughs) Thank you, guys. This is Risk. This is Junior Junior behind me now. It's so funny. This show is so goddamn old (laughs) that a lot of the bands that were on years ago have since changed their names. The last time they were on, they were called Dale Earnhardt Junior (laughs) Junior. They chopped off the Dale Earnhardt part. And we just heard 
from Dick Richards, who went right ahead and admitted in the middle of his story that his name is not Dick Richards. <laughs> That's our friend Kier, and you can find him on Instagram at Kier underscore 13. And happy 10th birthday to Kier's son, Holden, who I'm not sure is old enough to hear <laughs> this right now, but uh, happy 10th birthday anyway. I know that when I was around 9, 10 years old, I could not get enough of reading novels like The Exorcist or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, you know, the more adult and radical on the road, uh, Portnoy's complaint, you know. So I'm always telling people, you know, kids shouldn't listen to Risk, you know, because I don't have kids, and, you know, any individual kid, their parents are going to have a better idea of what they can handle, you know? I mean, we make this show from the premise that this is adult content for adult listeners. But I know damn well that if I was 10 years old right now, <laughs> I'd be listening to this show. <laughs> All right, before I say anything more that might get me into trouble, before Dick Richards, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Okay, our final story on this week's episode. This one was so moving in the theater. This was shared at our recent Fort Lauderdale show. This is Passion Black. She's a Risk fan who heard our call asking for pitches and reached out to us. You can find her on Instagram at Traveling Fitness Foodie. Here she is now. This is Passion Black with a story we call Life After Death. It's 6 a.m., and I'm lying in bed, barely awake, when I hear my mom say, Passion Denise, you up? Yeah, mama, I'm up. I'm about to take a shower. And she laughs and says, I don't hear you up. Get your ass out of bed and get ready for school. And I lay there and smile, because my mom and I had that cool kind of relationship. And my day wasn't complete, until she dropped a couple F-bombs and cussed me out. So she's like one of my favorite people, so I just love this about her. So I'm laying in bed, and I start chuckling, and then I frown, because my breath is kicking. And last night, instead of staying up late and trying to be too legit to quit with MC Hammer, I should have brushed my teeth and gone to bed. But I get up, roll out of bed, I go pee, and I go to the kitchen. And I see my mom sitting at the kitchen table drinking coffee. And I bounce over to her and give her a big hug and say, good morning, mama. And she says, good morning, rabbit. Oh, shit. Your breath stink. You need to go get ready for school and make sure you brush your teeth. And I start laughing as I walk back to the bathroom. And I say, dang, my breath ain't that bad. 
So I go get ready for school, and 30 minutes later, I go back to the kitchen. And my mom says, Rabbit, I need the car today. I look at her, and I say, for what? And she says, well, I have a doctor's appointment, so you're going to have to take the bus to school. And I say, no, Mama, I can take you to the doctor, because I knew she wasn't feeling well a couple weeks ago, so I just wanted to make sure she was doing okay. And she says, no, baby, you need to go to school and kick ass on that test. I'll be here when you get back. I'll see you when you get home from school. I said, okay, Mama, I love you. She said, I love you too, Rabbit. So to give you a little bit about my background, I wasn't a planned kid, or maybe I was. I was really the backup kid. My grandma told my parents that they needed to have another kid in case something happened to my brother. So I was born on Easter Sunday, and I like to consider myself my mom's Easter miracle. You know, what's crazy about it is the day I was born, my mom stopped getting her period. And because we're so connected, she didn't get her period until 12 years later when I got my first period. And I remember telling her, I remember telling her, Mama, I don't want my period. And she says, baby, we in this together. So as I grab my backpack and I'm walking to the bus stop, everything in me, down to my core, my soul, my spirit, everything says, turn around and go be with your mama. But I knew she would be mad at me if I didn't go to school and take this test. So I kept going. And I get on the bus and I go to school. And I go to first period, and a boy named Paul that I had the biggest crush on was teasing me. But that day, I just wasn't in the mood for it. So I ignored him. And then I started going through my morning, and sometime during the morning, I go to the payphone and call my mom. The phone goes to voicemail. So I think, you know what? Maybe she's at the doctor. Maybe she's running some errands. I'll just catch up with her later. So after lunch, I go to my fifth period class when I'm taking my test. And I'm taking the test, and I'm kicking ass on it. And halfway through the test, my chest gets so tight. And my, my heart rate just starts just going fast. It's just my heart's pounding. And my breathing gets really shallow, and I'm just struggling to breathe. And I just don't know what's going on. And I think, I just need to call my mama because she'll know how to fix this. So I raise my hand, and my teacher says, yes, Passion, what do you need? And I say, can I get a bathroom pass, please? And she says, now, Passion, you know that during tests, we don't give bathroom passes, but I'll make an exception for you just this one time, but you need to hurry back. And I say, okay, okay, I'll be right back. And I start walking down the hall to the payphone, and my chest is still just so tight, and I just, I'm struggling to breathe. And I pick up the phone, and I dial my parents' number. It goes, beep, beep, beep. I look at the phone, like, the phone shouldn't be busy. We have three-way calling. Then I think I'm going to call my dad, but I can't, 
because he's a delivery guy for UPS and he's out on the road and it's before cell phones and there's just no easy way to reach him. So I sit at the table and I gather myself and I go back to my class and I finish my test. And then I go to the last period of the day and this classroom had a phone in it. So I call my mom again and I get beep, beep, beep. And my heart starts to ache. My chest is still tight and I just don't know what to do. And I'm just, I'm struggling still to breathe. I don't know what's going on. And the bell rings and I go out to the bus and get on the bus and we're going home from Brandon to Tampa. It's like a 30 minute bus ride. And it may as well have been a cross country ride from Florida to California because it felt like it was taking forever. I wanted to cry, but I couldn't because I'm on the bus with other kids and I don't want them to laugh and tease me. So I sit there and I try to distract myself. Okay, when I get home, I'm going to talk to mom about Paul and I'm going to see if she thinks he likes me and I'm going to tell her how, how cute I think he is and I'm going to tell her how I kicked ass on this test because yeah, I did that shit and eventually the bus drops us off and I see my house. It's about two blocks away and I start walking but I'm struggling to walk and it, it feels like I have bricks strapped to my feet And with every heavy step I take, I feel like I'm sinking in quicksand. And I just, I'm thinking to myself, I just got to get home, but I don't know what's going on with me. So I finally reach the house. I open the door and I say, hey, mama. And I don't get a response. And the house is pitch black. And I think, oh, okay, you know, she's probably taking a nap. So I'll just let her know that I'm home and then I'll go do my homework. And I walk into the kitchen. I walk into the kitchen. And I see the phone on the floor. And I look to my right. And my mom is laying on her back under the kitchen table, not moving. So I rush over to her, Mama, Mama, are you okay? And I'm under the table with her. And she's not responding to me. Her body is stiff and it's just lifeless. So I pick up the phone and I dial 911. 911, what's your emergency? My mama, my mama, I don't know what's going on with her. Please help me. And she says, is she breathing? I said, no, no, I don't think she is. Please help me, help me. And she says, okay, we'll send someone right over. So I go back to the table and sit at the table with my mom holding her hand, trying to stay calm and cool for my mama. And I'm like, Mama, it's going to be okay. I'm here. It's going to be okay. And it was taking forever for the paramedic to come, forever. And after a while, I, I walk outside. And I'm waiting, thinking, maybe they got lost. I'm going to have to fly them down. I don't know. 
And after two or three minutes or so, they pull up and they said, where is she? And I said, she's in the house. Come on, come on. And they pull her from under the table and into the walkway that separated the dining room from the kitchen. And they start doing CPR and everything to try to save her. And I can't bear to look at what they're doing to her. It was just too much for me. So I walk outside and I wait. And after a few minutes, the paramedics come and stand next to me. And I look up at them. And I said, how is she? And he looks at me and doesn't say anything. And after a couple of moments, he says, is there someone you can call? I'm not going to leave you here by yourself. So I go back in, and I call my dad's job. And they tell me that they can't reach him because he's still on the road. But as soon as he gets in, they'll let him know to call me because it's an emergency. So then I stand there, and I look at my mom. And I'm so sad. My heart is breaking, shattering. in a million pieces. And that sadness turns to anger toward her. And I get so pissed at her because she told me, she promised me that morning that when I got home from school, she would be there. She would be there and she wasn't. And I was pissed as hell at her. But then I got pissed at myself. Because if I listened to myself that morning, when I was walking to the bus stop, and if I turned around, things could have been different. Maybe my mama wouldn't be laying there dead. I could have saved her. I could have been here with her. But I didn't listen to myself. It's been 26 years since my mom died, y'all. 26 years. 26 years. And I've learned a couple things in this time. I think the first is to learn to trust myself and listen to my instinct, listen to my gut, listen to my intuition about things. Because if I listened that day, maybe things could have turned out differently. But since then, I've listened to myself in terms of if I meet a guy and I think he's full of shit, I'm like, all right, you know what? This motherfucker's full of shit. You might want to walk away. <laughs> so I'm, I'm learning more and more to listen to myself. But the crazy thing is, you know, my mom died when she was 44. And I turned 43 a month ago. And on my 43rd birthday, I'm thinking about this. And it dawned on me that I don't know what life is for a woman past 44. I have no fucking idea what to do, how to live, who I am past 44, because the woman I'm most connected to isn't here to show me. But then I realized she's actually here with me every single day. She's in my ear 
when I'm about to do something fucked up and says, Passion Denise, what the hell are you doing? Or if I'm doing something absolutely amazing in my life and she's there saying, Rabbit, I know you can do it. I'm so proud of you. And I know as I try to figure out this life and this womanhood journey past 44, my mom is here with me because death can't keep her from me. Thank you. For this week's episode, folks, this is Hatchie behind me now, and we just heard from Passion Black. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. Buy the Risk book, become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk, and don't forget, all of our education is at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk.
back my asshole.